So there's this announcement and a response. So if I walk up to you and I say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the worst. Will there be anybody in that community who's afraid to confess something they've done? Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and the gospel and recover what's good and wonderful about the gospel. We're in a series called Recovering Faith. And we've got these sections in our series, saved from what, saved how, and saved for what. We're in the saved for what section of our series, Recovering Faith. Last week, in episode 12, we worked on the problem of authority. While the church generally tries to operate on the principle that the Bible or the New Testament is our authority for our faith and practice, we argued that this has actually divided the church and it has splintered it into a thousand different sects. We argued that while the Bible divides us, the gospel message unites us under one simple message. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. So go back and listen to episode 12 if you'd like to explore the issue of authority. Today, in episode 13, we're building on that and we're discussing the proper use of the Bible. If the gospel is our authority, what then is the proper use of the Bible for the Christian and for the church? Good question. Good word, good word. Nathan, you've talked about the Bible as a ministry multi-tool. Which, is that like the Swiss Army knife? Right, yeah. The the Leatherman's? (laughs) Yeah, the Leatherman's. If it's a cheap Gerber knockoff. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked about um, the Bible as not the standard, right? And that probably makes us heretics with some people. I don't know. Maybe maybe I don't. I shouldn't worry about that. Um, And so if somebody's really biblically aware, maybe they would be like, well, what about 2 Timothy 3? 17 mm. you know let's read that one yeah or three sixteen and 17 all scripture is god breathed inspired i guess um and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work mm-hmm. what is scripture to begin with Right. We have assumptions when we when we hear that, yeah. As we're reading in our uh, bound Bible, right? Right. Christians what would, what would Timothy have heard if he had just received this message? Yeah. It's like scripture. What? What's the first thing that comes into Timothy's mind? Right. Yeah. The canonized uh, Bible that we have today. Sixty-six books, right, in a leather-bound volume, bonded leather. It said leather. Timothy. <laughs> son of Lois, grandson of Eunice, or vice versa, right? Yeah. Um, we don't know his dad's name. But yeah, um, so the, when we read the word scripture there, we obviously, we tend to say it's the Bible and the Bible as we have it. But of course, that couldn't have included Second Timothy because it's referring away from itself um, so at bare minimum, he's referring to a previous 65 books. Uh, chances are Timothy didn't have access to more than a couple of scrolls, really, uh, you know, as Paul 
asks him to bring the scrolls with him when he comes. There were obviously a few scriptures. We're not talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No. Yeah, we're we're talking about the Old Testament. Right. So when he says that, then we we have to know if we're really going to be true. If we're really going to use a, a, a faithful hermeneutic, then we have to understand that Paul intended us to read that as the Hebrew scriptures that they had. That doesn't mean that it doesn't necessarily apply to things in the New Testament. It just means that it doesn't have to or it doesn't implicitly apply to that. But what I would suggest is that when he, he gives this list of things that it's useful for, Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that these are ministry functions. Correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. Right. So we use the scripture to teach, rebuke, correct, and train. Um, it, uh, we tend to, because we're in a, a literate society, or at least uh, you know, formerly literate society, that we tend to see, we read this as the Bible will teach you, it will rebuke you, it will correct you, and it will train you in righteousness if you read it for yourself. But that wasn't the an option for the first century Christian. Nobody is sitting down having a quiet time with their Bible in the first century. Most of them weren't literate and almost none of them had any, even a shred of the scripture. So it's not really the intention. It seems to me to be that it is equipping the man of God. Um, and so this is somebody who is, is serving as God's mouthpiece, his minister. And um, so he's saying, you know, use this passage, use this text as training in your ministry in the gospel. Um, if we go just prior, just the two verses previous to that, um, we'll see kind of some context. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the Scriptures are not that which save, but they are that which point us to Mm -hmm. that which saves. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes a, it's a pretty important distinction to make. So Timothy has been taught the scriptures, but that has made him wise for salvation. And so now he can point other people toward the saving message, uh, which is the gospel. So, yeah. So the scriptures worked that way in his life. Mm-hmm. The scriptures prepared him to believe the gospel when he heard it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now Paul is saying, keep on using the scripture that way. It's useful in that way. Yeah, it's right. useful to point you to Christ, and it's useful for you as a tool that you can use to point others to Christ. Exactly. Yeah. And I, whenever I think about it, I always think about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus where they yeah. <laughs> unknowingly meet, meet Christ along the road and you know they're, they're still living in the uh, the assumption that you know uh, Jesus has died and it's over mm-hmm. and he's like no no look it says he goes all the way through you know the, the Jewish scriptures and says all he was pointing out all the times that 
the Old Testament was pointing to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, they say, was not our hearts burning within us? And so that there is such a powerful um, uh, tradition that's pointing things to Christ, pointing things to the gospel through the Old Testament. It just takes, like you said, a different hermeneutic, a different lens, a different way to approach it than we typically I think equip ourselves for, you right. know, and so this, like you said, this individualistic reading, like I'm coming to this as my devotional time, you yeah. know, it, it's really looking for all the ways that, yeah, the Old Testament scripture is pointing or highlighting the gospel to turn us towards the gospel as the means for, you know, our sanctification and salvation. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we could think of so in, in biblical circles, we, we think of the Bible as the Word of God, and then we think of um, human texts about the Bible as commentary. But what if we move that just one position to the right, and we said, the Gospel is the Word of God, and the Bible is commentary. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be what Paul is saying in Second Timothy 3, is that the Bible is this it's a commentary on the gospel that it is something that is a, it's supplemental material to help you as you teach it, as you rebuke people and correct them, and as you train them in righteousness. So the, the Bible gives this, this depth of understanding, this background, the backstory that there's so much to be obtained. Um, and the Bible, the scriptures, they, they elucidate the gospel in, in various ways that we don't necessarily see on our own, or at least not at first blush. And so it's very helpful. It's faith affirming to see the gospel in the scriptures, but it is also, it also grants us insight into the gospel to see, you know, where it comes from. We see Jesus in the Old Testament and um, all of that, that gives us some background on who he is, what this gospel is about, the emphasis that we need to place on certain elements of it at certain times. There's just this literacy in the gospel, no pun intended, that comes from being literate in the scripture. Being a reader of the Bible, it gives us literacy in the gospel. So just as a case in point, um, so 1 John 1, 1 through 3, okay? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship um, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And in verse four, he says that, this is the, the word that's come to us that, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So when John begins to talk about the gospel in relation to scripture, he goes all the way back to Genesis 1. He says that which was from the beginning. So he's the contention of the early proclaimers of the gospel was that the gospel has been proclaimed from the outset. We, we tend to make this, this line of distinction and say that's the Old Testament, this is the New Testament, but they didn't see that dichotomy. They just said this was always being proclaimed. And so we, in Genesis 3 where we see let there be light. And so God has this moment where he awakens the universe and light breaks in. And, and Paul says that's the gospel. 
<laughs> you know, that we see an eternal fellowship where, uh, you know, there's this God who's speaking in this first person plural as the Spirit <coughs> of God is hovering over the waters and there's let there be light, let us make man in our own image. And so there's this eternal fellowship and Paul, I mean, and John is saying, so this fellowship is what created everything. And this fellowship declares that light is good, that it, that it produced light, that light comes and emanates from this fellowship. And, and so he begins to make points based on that. So the, the gospel message, which what's beautiful about it is, is that the gospel enables utter transparency in people. Most people, without the gospel message, most people spend time minimizing their faults, maximizing their virtues, and um, hiding away certain elements of their character, covering their tracks, hiding any evidence of things that they've done or whatever that, um, whether it's, you know, you're writing a resume and you're accentuating things or, or whatever, how we interact with people in the world is, is predicated on deceit, uh, on opacity. But the gospel, to accept the gospel, well, we have to admit that we are capital offenders and that we're loved anyway. Mm -hmm. So those two, those two kind of contradictory affirmations, they require transparency to be lived out. If we say that we believe the gospel, but then we go on and we live lives that are just as opaque as the people around us, then we deny the gospel and our behavior. So the proclamation, let there be light, is this, um, it's foreshadowing of the gospel. It is a, is a proclamation of the gospel that with this, with this message of the crucifixion and the resurrection, there is going to be a revealing and, and uh, a society, a fellowship of people living in the open. And that's how they're going to have fellowship with each other. As John says, if we confess our sins, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So he's, he's taking this proclamation, let there be light. And, and he's showing how it is really fulfilled in Christ. You'll remember in the story of the fall, what's the first inclination when they sin? Run and hide. Right. So the, the, very much from the beginning, there's this dichotomy between naked and unashamed and hiding, hiding from God, blame shifting, all of this. And so there, there are really these two approaches to life, these two kingdoms that are from the very beginning. And if we truly accept the gospel message, then we have to, if we're going to be consistent with it, then we have to be transparent people. Um, and that's, that could be a challenge, but, uh, ironically, what, what's so ironic is, is that the church has come to be known as, as hypocritical, um, because we create alternative approaches to behavior modification <laughs> that's based on external conformity and, um, interpersonal shame. And once that, once you've created that dynamic, you're just churning out the hypocrisy and that in and of itself is a denial of the gospel and we don't recognize it somehow because we think that the gospel is that thing that got us in but now we have to do what our church leaders say in order to live as faithful christians so you're, you're citing first john the letter yeah and you're using it as an example of how 
to use scripture. So here's John using scripture the way that Paul told Timothy to use scripture. Yeah. He said it's useful in your gospel ministry. Mm -hmm. So the gospel is what corrects and, and rebukes and trains us and the, and the, the Old Testament and that, for that matter the New Testament as well by implication mm -hmm. is useful in that gospel ministry. Exactly. Here's John looking all the way back to Genesis and applying what he sees there to the gospel or applying the gospel to Genesis and then sort of reading Genesis through the lens of the gospel and understanding it in a fresh way right. because of the gospel. Yeah. It, um, I don't know if we have time here, but it might be good if we flipped the table and did an inverse example of how not, not to do it, which yeah. I think is typical to the, the way in... You know our individualistic society and time we, we tend to approach scripture which is um i'm coming looking for answers to xyz why should i not sleep with my girlfriend mm -hmm. you know smoking marijuana bad you know things like this and we're coming to scripture looking for specific answers rather than um, knowing and understanding the gospel and how that would apply to my my situation and how that shapes me from the inside out rather than trying to find some external you know, uh, rule or example that I should just follow that. Right. So I don't know if we have an example of that, but well, obviously any kind of, so the example is that when we write church, prolonged church faith statements that talk about the way people should behave, um, as a member of that church. So, you know, if you're a part of this church, then you're not going to engage in some sort of overtly immoral behavior. Um, now, that's certainly, we don't want to encourage immorality, obviously, but a lot of those statements are born out of this um, institutional self-awareness, like we don't want you out there representing our church in a bad light. Um, but again, that concern for how we're going to look, it goes back to that culture of opacity. You know, it, it goes back to that culture of, of deceit and of hiding in that we, we want to have good PR out there. We want to have good press. Um, and I think so many egregious sins have grown in the darkness of of this greater good like you know don't let's not reveal that this indiscretion happened because then the ministry will will fall into disrepute we'll lose supporters all the good things we're doing will go away but if we understood the gospel as you know as John is seeing it in scripture. So we could look at scripture and we could find lists of moral prescriptions, okay? And that's what we do, right? So we find these moral lists, like uh, Paul says, you know, lay off these things, these things, these things, these things, you know? So immorality, of course, talk and all this, you know? Um, and, and so he gives some specifics on how we should live and then we turn those, we kind of codify those, okay? And, and then when we do that, then we are immediately encouraging people to appear as though they are keeping up with those rules just by default because we haven't given them the same underpinning that, that Paul did. Paul's like, because you're accepted, because you're brought in, you should live this way. It, we, we flip it and say, do this or, or be considered outside or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and that's the exact opposite of what, what Paul is doing and what the gospel would say. Yeah, and I even just think, you know, so many churches have some kind of faith statement. And then if, you be, if you're going to become or you want to become a member of that church, they will, will ask you to sign. Mm-hmm. You know, sign the faith statements saying, I, you know, I agree to these things. But all that is is mental assent. Yeah. You know, and how deep does that go? Right. <laughs> As opposed to having the gospel internalized in us and having that that filter that affects everything that we look at, scripture and non-scripture even. Right. right. And, and to have this confidence that God is at work in people who believe the gospel and that their lives are being changed by the gospel, separate and apart from any sort of conforming pressure I may put on them um, that, you know, and Paul in Philippians 3, he says, one thing I do, I forget what's behind, I press on to what's ahead, to the upward call. And, and then he says, uh, so this is, this is, you know, what I'm convinced of what I do, but he says, if you are otherwise minded, if you, if you don't see it that way, uh, God will reveal it to you. <laughs> you know, he's not like, so see it my way or else, you know, he's just like, you have the resources to to get this in the gospel. And and Paul had such faith in the gospel that he did not need to bring alternative conforming pressure, kind of argue someone into a corner, uh, get them to agree with his position on a thing. He could just say, well, this is what I believe. And, and it obviously was a very big thing for him. He's like, one thing I do. That's, you know, it's not like down the laundry list. That's just like the one thing, forgetting what's behind, I press on. And, and he's just like, look, if you, continue to hold on to the gospel, you're going to come to this one thing, <laughs> you know, uh, life is going to teach you this one thing um, if you continue to abide in Christ. And so um, that's, I, I think that kind of confidence, it just, it's just commensurate to the gospel call. But again, it's, it's becoming literate in the gospel. When we see the gospel as just the take it to heaven, then it doesn't, it doesn't have the resources to correct our behavior and to catch us in things that the world would um, say are benign behaviors or even um, righteous things. You know, um, the gospel indicts motives and inclinations. It, it probes deep into us and maybe we don't want that. Um, but we need it. We need to have some of these tendencies precluded in us or we're going to cause hurt to other people and we don't want that. So having the gospel illuminated like John did with this kind of let there be light moment and saying, seeing that the gospel is this thing and it's supposed to reveal. So let's just take that. Let's just take that doctrine. Let's just say, if you believe the gospel, then transparency is a cardinal implication of virtue of the gospel. Okay, let's just say that. Mm-hmm. And that every level, at every level for the Christian, transparency is, is required that's implicit to the gospel, wherever you are. How many things can you think of right now that could have very, could have benefited from transparency, you know, in church culture? Um, you know, I, I think the, the scandals uh, with the, in the Catholic Church with the priests, you know. Um, if, so let's say there's a, there's a priest who has pedophilic inclinations, okay? 
And what, what do we do with him? Do we, do we bring him out into the light and say, you know, Father Joe is, is struggling um, with pedophilic urges. And, and now he's loved and accepted and they put him through therapy and, you know, they're, they are careful not to assign him in certain places. Or do we say, hey, this, you know, what you just confessed to me is under the seal of confession. Nobody has to know about this. Go on and do your ministry. You know, um, yikes. I mean, just the whole seal of confession thing. It's like there's an opacity that's built in to the religion. And once that's present, um, there's so much wickedness that can grow in that darkness. But the gospel doesn't, you know, the gospel precludes that, that, that hiddenness. Um, Robbie Zacharias, these inclinations, you know, these, these indications that he was up to something, but nobody wanted to know. And certainly they didn't want to call him out on it because the entire ministry was built on him and his reputation. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's sweep that under the rug, you know, whether. And how powerful would it be if, you know, the, the expectation, I think we're, we're afraid of, you know, our sins being revealed, first of all. Mm-hmm. We, we we don't want other people to know what we're really up to sometimes, yeah. you know. And, but then especially, you know, within a, a community like the church, there, like you said, there's those other conforming pressures. But how beautiful would it be if the, you know, the expectation is that when you do want help and you're like, I want to be rid of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> That I know that I can, I can come out and be um, honest and transparent about this, and I will receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. You know that will lead me to a place where I can ultimately heal. You know, heal from this thing and and have freedom. You know, how powerful would that be? Rather than like, oh my gosh, you know, if somebody finds out about you know, what's really going on, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm screwed, yeah. you know, so I got to keep, I got to keep hiding this and then I've got to keep pressuring everybody else to hide their stuff because, you know, otherwise it's all going to fall apart. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that there was a, a greeting, a common greeting when Paul tells Timothy, he says, this is a, this is a worthy statement. Um, uh, he says in First Timothy 1, here is a trustworthy saying. So you can tell places where Paul is pointing to these kind of creedal statements that had come up in the church, these slogans. Because, okay, so you're in a group of people. You have one critical doctrine, and, um, and then everything else is kind of this charismatic meeting where the Holy Spirit is speaking through people and stuff. And, and so you have to have this underpinning of the doctrine and and just for the sake of keeping the ship on course okay um but and it's but it's small enough that everybody can agree on it remember it and so i think these these hymns these slogans were critical to maintaining the integrity of the gospel and the emphasis of it in the churches okay and so when paul says here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance i think he's not 
he's there should be quotation marks now because he's saying this is something that's being said and he's commending it so it is this christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the worst now i'm this is pure conjecture okay but it would not have been uncommon to have um an announcement and a response so um on easter and high church christ is risen he is risen, risen indeed right <laughs> so there's this announcement and a response so if i walk up to you and i say christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the worst will there be anybody in that community who's afraid to confess something they've done there shouldn't be if every one of us has always has responded of whom i'm the worst if we live with that we dwell on it what does that do how does that shape our treatment of sin and our treatment of one another um, it does away with this tendency to judge and indict to categorize sin and create a, a taxonomy that you know here's the really terrible stuff and here's the stuff that's not as bad and uh, if we understand that our sin is the worst each of us you know we look at that and we go well paul man he really was bad and he gives reasons why he says he's the worst he it's not baseless but i i know he's not the worst sinner <laughs> you know there have been far worse um people in terms of the way we measure it but from my standpoint i need to internalize that because once i allow myself to judge somebody else i'm kind of revoking the gospel i you know that there is this extreme moment of of the crucifixion that levelizes all sin so that we don't go through and judge we're now capable of extending mercy because that's the only hope that we have of building a society is is through mercy mercy triumphs over judgment and so this essence of the gospel as we come back to it again and again we would do well to have some good slogans like that as that facilitates transparency so just dropping a peg there that that opacity is a denial of the gospel that any organization that that would try to hide the truth isn't seeking the greater good the greater good is a worldly mentality that it, it congratulates ourselves for the good things we're doing here and it's not the essence it's not the point that that self-congratulatory idea i mean so many organizations societies we we kind of set this vision and we beat the drum and you know and along the way we ask the question what are we accomplishing right every year what are we accomplishing and that sounds like faithfulness, but the only people who ask that question in the Bible are the people who crucified Jesus. In John 11, right? Everyone's going after Jesus because he's raised Lazarus, and they say, what are we accomplishing? At this rate, everyone's going to go after him, and then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. See, that's, that's religiosity. That's this poisonous version of religion that destroys everything. Whereas the gospel is as opposite to that as it is to just rank atheism, hedonism, that it is, it indicts with equal force and intensity, this religiosity, this hypocrisy. I mean, Jesus didn't have a ton of 
critiques for the outright sinners, right? His his primary concern was with the hypocrites. So your point your your point is that. Um, that when we have the Bible as our standard, we end up in these uh, religious systems mm-hmm. that promote hiding and deception. When we have the gospel as our standard, that uh, we have we are in, we're, we're drawn into transparency, yes, and mercy versus judgment. Right, and and that's an example of how the Scripture enlightens the gospel. It puts us back on track with it you know we we tend to perhaps minimize elements of the gospel or things that the gospel is teaching us and so scripture helps us to you know it does keep that plumb line up against everything i mean the gospel ultimately is that if we were really reflecting on the gospel we would come out with that truth um but oftentimes pressures around us or whatever our own inclinations and tendencies we try to to back off of those implications. And so scripture will keep us there. It will correct us, rebuke us, tr- teach us and train us in righteousness. Um, and it will give us the ability to do that for others. Um, and so that's why I call it a ministry multi-tool because it, um, with the gospel in hand, it just shows us how to use the gospel. You know, We see the gospel as this, um, this all-in-one, this multi-purpose thing. I guess it's the multi-tool, but uh, the scripture teaches us how to use it in its various applications because we don't necessarily see it all immediately. So the gospel teaches us how to use scripture, and then scripture teaches us more about the gospel. Yes. Uh, You have have this point, saving faith enables access to the life-giving spirit of scripture. Right. What do you mean by the life-giving spirit of scripture. I think you're citing Paul mm-hmm. in Second Corinthians. I am. Yeah. Um, so really ba- uh, backing up to 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49, um, Paul says, so, so it will be at the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown in, sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So I... Paul draws a contrast between the first Adam, who is this progenitor of of physical human life, um, psychical life, if you will, Um, and the last Adam, who is Christ, who has become a life-giving spirit, that there's some sort of a process of conversion that Jesus has gone through, that he has become something, and what he has become is a life-giving spirit. So if you look at 2 Corinthians 3, 3 through 6, um, Paul talks about that. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So he's saying that, you know, Jesus is revealing himself through the, the personality of the people in Corinth, right, through their character. Such confidence we have through God, uh, through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, 
but of the spirit for for the letter kills but the spirit gives life and so we can look at scripture in two ways right the letter or the spirit and he says even to this day when moses is read a veil covers their hearts but when anyone turns to the lord the veil is taken away now the lord is the spirit you know we, we tend to think of the spirit of the lord right that the spirit is a person who is of the lord and he is but in this case paul is saying that that the lord when he uses that title unqualified he means jesus right and and he's saying that there is a spirit in the scripture and that that spirit is the lord right and where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, um, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So Jesus has become a spirit. He is the spirit that we see in scripture. OK, and um, and so this idea of what would Jesus do is misguided because what we want is Oftentimes we read the Gospels and we look for the psychical man, the, the personality in, in the Gospels. And we say, I want to be like that guy, but that guy is not generalizable to us. We can't, we can't really become him, right? That was one life that was lived and it's over. But Jesus has become, he has transferred his essence, his essential nature, his spirit. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17, it says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. By the way, I, I would say that is the spirit of Christ. The dying and the rising, right? The, the living for him and um, laying down our lives for others and rising again. And so he says, so from now on, we, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So this essential nature of Jesus, if we get that the spirit of Christ is this faith in the resurrection that is, you know, this, this belief that God is bigger than this reality that we live in and that he loves us and can be trusted. So, and, and, and bringing therefore together, I will lay down my life. Exactly. In love. Right. And so that is the spirit of Christ in scripture. We're not looking for Jesus of Nazareth in scripture. We are looking for this essential spirit who Jesus has now come to fully embody after coming and putting his faith in the father dying and rising again he is now the embodiment of the spirit that has been in scripture the whole time and so the new creature is the one who is living according to this spirit and so as we go into scripture and we look for that theme mm -hmm. what we okay. find it is again and again so here again we see the themes of um cruciform love resurrection faith Right. Those are the phrases you've taught us. You're saying this is the spirit of Christ. Right. This is what he embodied in his in his earthly life. And now he's mm -hmm. translating and transferring that spirit to all who believe in him. Right. And we can find that those themes 
in the Old Testament. Right. Yeah, the gospel and see is that the spirit, spirit of Christ, Christ in the Old Testament. Right. The gospel is the spirit of Christ, and so Christ has become the gospel in the sense that he, the gospel, is the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. So he has become the embodiment of this, of this message, and this message is the vehicle for this spirit, um, and on it goes. So. Um, it, now, I don't mean to suggest that the Holy Spirit himself, a conscious, personal being, is not living inside the Christian. He is, but he is living here to reproduce the essential nature of Jesus, and that is this death and resurrection, and he is the power of the resurrection and, and the guidance toward that. So let me just give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament, um, just the book of Genesis, of what I'm talking about. Okay, just real quick. Okay, so here's one. Uh, Jacob lives his whole life. He's a trickster. He's always trying to one-up people, right? But he's coming back home. He's left behind Laban, who he's had this uh, troubled relationship with, and they've kind of blocked, barred the return. At least he doesn't feel permission, I think, to go back. So he's got to go back home. Um, and God has already told him to go back home. But then he discovers Esau's coming at him with 400 men. And Esau's aggrieved. He's already messed over Esau. So Jacob's past is catching up with him. God wrestles with Jacob, you know, he, he encounters him, um, there. And, and I would, I would see in that for me, for the, when I look at that and, um, I, we could go way into this, but that is a, the death of Jacob. It is this conversion moment where Jacob crosses the river, this pineal right this brook and he, he crosses this and now he sees the face of god and you get this moment of grace where esau doesn't attack him it says when he saw him in the distance he fell on his neck and hugged him and jacob says now that you have accepted me it is like seeing the face of god and so here's the gospel of grace in this story back in Genesis 33, you know, and Jacob is, is changed. He, he's no longer the trickster. He's not trying to mess people over, get the best of them from that moment on. He's different. Jacob goes on. He has some kids. Joseph um, is sold into slavery. He's betrayed by 10 of his brothers. Okay. And these guys, they tell this lie. They cover up their sin. They, you know, kill this animal and dip Joseph's robe in this blood and, and so Jacob is, is grieving for 22 years he grieves the loss of his son and um, Joseph orchestrates things so Joseph rises you know you know the story so he rises out of his slavery and imprisonment and finally is at the right hand of power on high okay um, and and from this position his brothers come and, and they don't recognize him and Joseph treats them harshly and, and all this uh, happens, but Joseph orchestrates everything so that he can blame the one innocent brother for a crime and let the other ones go free. Right? He frames Benjamin, the only person not involved in his betrayal, the only person not privy to this lie. He he orchestrates everything to blame Benjamin for the sin of the ten. And in that moment, Judah can take it no more. <laughs> you know, he says, don't, don't let me see the grief that this would bring on my father, right? And so there's this moment of, of death and resurrection, you know, that, that Judah has to face himself and, and uh, this lie that he's been maintaining for his own sake and the sake of his uh, confederates 
is now relinquished in this moment of, of awareness that comes through blaming an innocent, you know, and, and so there's this reconciliation and this renewal that comes. So that's just a couple of examples of if you take the themes of the gospel and, and you look back into the Old Testament, what is, you know, very mystifying in the sense that Jacob is not the hero of the story of the Bible, right? He is a creep. Nobody likes a, a weasel. You know, there's not there's nothing positive about that. You know, I mean, you could look at Samson and say, yeah, he was a womanizer, but man, he could kick some butt when you need, you know, there's something laudable about Samson, even though he's flawed. But Jacob, there's nothing, you know, this guy is self-centered and he'll stab you in the back. And yet he's he's the progenitor of the nation. Right. But without the spirit of Christ, it's very mystifying that he's the one that's chosen. Same with Joseph. Here's somebody that's supposed to be seen as um, this moral exemplar, right? He, he doesn't seem to become bitter and stuff about all this betrayal. He maintains his faith in God. And yet he's sadistic. I mean, the, the, just the suffering, the psychological pain that he causes his brothers and his dad in, in all of his machinations. And you're thinking, man, who is this guy? He's just straight up evil. But he keeps turning away and weeping. You know, that, that in the midst of what appears to be sadistic behavior is a ton of just compassion and longing. Uh, and, and so it doesn't make sense. People don't act like this. So on the surface, these stories, they're, they're confusing and they're even off-putting. But when we take the Spirit of Christ, you know, we, we look back with that lens and we see that there's just something beautiful going on. There's something reaching beyond the re events as reported into the human condition and our need for grace and the gospel and its effects. And so these kinds of things set our expectation for the gospel. And so we can say, hey, you know, we, we come away from that and we say, those who believe in grace are done trying to one-up other people. Well, we should have already known that from the gospel. We should learn that in the implication, but boy, that really helps to shed that light and say, you know what, if you are a person of who's really received the grace of God, you want to be included in Israel, then you're done. You're done with this interpersonal fight and all the drama. You know, you're not trying to get yours anymore. Yours is handled. So that's just some of it. Wow. And on that note, go and read your Bibles, people. Yeah. <laughs> see if you can see the gospel in the scripture and see if the scripture gives you insight into the gospel and how it applies in your life. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us. You may have some questions. Email us those questions to discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Thanks. See you next time.